Alfonso was getting some odd phone calls. They were all from strangers, and angry ones at that. A farmer blamed Alfonso for the failure of his strawberry crop. Some people just swore at him. They all asked him to please, please stop the rain. He was confused. He was just a regular guy, a former Navy man, enjoying his retirement in a small town in California. And then the penny dropped. There was a reason Alfonso was being blamed for the storms battering the West Coast. He wasn't listed as Alfonso in the phone book, he was Al, and his surname was Nino. The irate callers had confused Al Nino with the weather phenomenon causing the terrible weather, El Nino. This summer, El Nino is one of the reasons why the heat waves causing such misery across America and around the world are bringing such high temperatures. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how can America adapt to extreme heat? It's hot. Over the past month, millions of Americans have been sweltering in fierce temperatures. Around a third of the population lives in places where the government has recently issued warnings about extreme heat. Even so, people are still moving to the country's most scorching places. How can American cities prepare for an even hotter future? With me this week to talk about what America and American cities have to do to adapt to a warming climate are Idris Kaloun, coming to us from New York this week, and Erin Braun, who is in Los Angeles. Charlotte is taking a well-deserved break this week, but Erin's been in Phoenix recently doing some reporting on the extraordinary heatwave afflicting the Southwest, so we're delighted to have her here, and we'll have some of her reporting later in the show. Idris, how are you doing? And why are you in New York? And what's going on there? So I have so many questions. I'm doing well. I'm in New York just for a few meetings. Uh, I haven't been to the city in a while. It's um, it's hot. It's humid. um, It smells delightful, as New York always does. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm just living the dream. I think it's safe to say that the New York Tourist Board wouldn't come to you for a kind of ringing endorsement of a vacation in that city. But you're you're having a good time, nevertheless. And Erin, how are you doing? You're back home in LA after all your travels. Yeah, I'm good, John. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. I have to say, after hanging out in Phoenix for a few days, LA feels downright balmy. I did want to tell Idris that I did try the pizzeria place that he told me to go to. And I sent him a photo when I was there. And it was very good. For me, everything is like on a scale of thin crust to deep dish as a Chicagoan. And it was like the thinnest, crispiest pizza I have ever had which is great that was a it was delightful yeah it's not a pound of tomato sauce and mozzarella in a cornmeal crust (laughs) but uh it's pretty good Erin I was also quite jealous of your drive from Phoenix to LA which is one I've always wanted to do how was that 
It was great, apart from it being 117 degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) Um, But, you know, really beautiful cacti and mountains. And it's fun to see kind of how the desert changes from Sonoran to Mojave. But I was quite worried about turning my AC up too high and overheating my car. So it was a very hot drive. And of course, that natural beauty is one of the reasons why so many Americans are moving to the Southwest, which is becoming hotter and hotter, as we're going to be discussing in this week's episode. I thought we'd start by just looking at what's been causing this extreme heat. And there are few better people in the world, I think, to help us do this than our colleague Oliver Morton, who I'm lucky enough to share an office with at The Economist. He's one of our senior editors, senior writers, and he's a brilliant, brilliant science writer, author of multiple books and all-round polymath. When we talked earlier this week, I began by asking him how he would best explain how remarkable this recent run of weather has been. July the 3rd was the hottest day since the 1980s and probably a long time before that. July the 6th was even hotter. Remarkably, we're recording this on July the 25th, the temperature has yet to drop back down below the previous record. So globally, every day since July the 3rd has been hotter than every other day on the record. That sort of string for three weeks of just hot, 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 that's just something that I've never seen looking at the figures before. So that in one way hits me far more than any particular heat wave. We will get on to the root causes of this in a second. But first, could you tell us what physically is happening when it's this hot? There are two ways that somewhere can get really hot. And they tend to be mixed up. One is sometimes you get air from northern Africa coming up over parts of Europe. That can't be that bad unless you add high pressure. So basically when pressure is high, so there's more atmosphere than normal over your head, that pushes down. And the way that the land tends to cool itself is by evaporating water vapor up. And so if you can't have these rising thermal water vapor effects or clouds as they're known uh, technically, then you just get hotter and hotter. And that's what you get in most places. And sometimes this is these days called a heat dome, which is kind of evocative, but also not in, I'm not entirely clear what it's taken to mean. But basically, hot air and high pressure will stick around and make your life miserable. So as a result of those phenomena you describe, we have extreme heat in the southwest in America in particular, and millions of Americans living under extreme heat advisories. Whenever there's a heat wave like this, there's always a debate in America and journalists like us try to explain the degree to which it can and cannot be attributed to man-made climate change. So how do you go about thinking through the answer to that question? Well, the sort of like zeroth order answer that question is duh, because we now live in a human-made climate. It's 1.1 to 1.2 degrees warmer than pre-industrial. That's because of what humans have done. And so things that now happen in this climate happen as happen in the context of climate change. Whether a given particular event is made more likely or less likely by climate change or whether a class of events is made more or less likely by climate change is more involved. It's certainly true that high extreme temperatures rather than extreme low temperatures are made more likely by climate change because if you shift the average temperature of the world up, you're going to shift the extreme temperatures of the world up too. And in fact, they're going to shift more. 
attributing specific events to climate change is possible to a certain extent using statistical methods in which you compare models in which there isn't climate change with models in which there is. And that sort of analysis does suggest that the current American heat waves would have been very unlikely in a world that hadn't undergone climate change. But it seems to me that that is that that has a certain sort of like rhetorical value. But the truth is the world is 1.2 degrees hotter. What do you expect? Oh, so I take from that we can't say that Phoenix will be hotter, you know, next summer or even the following one. But that we can, with some confidence, predict that the average temperatures in Phoenix will be even higher in the next decade than they are in this. Absent that very fast reduction in carbon emissions, which seems unlikely at the moment, do we just expect places in the south and southwest just to get kind of hotter and hotter? And and what does that look like? It's not a question of absent carbon dioxide emissions reduction. It's going to get hotter even if you do reduce emissions until emissions get to zero and then it's going to level off. And so you can't predict this may be um, an extreme event by new world standards, but I wouldn't expect it to be. You can say that on average worldwide, it looks probably a bit more likely than not that 2023 will go down as the hottest year on record. You can also say pretty surely that it will be one of the cooler years of the 21st century because the warming will continue on average and the extremes, they may not be broken in Phoenix next year, but somewhere in the world will have a heat wave it's never quite seen before. And there's a real worry about the fact that some places are now prone to heat waves that really don't have a historical record of them. So, Erin, you were reporting from the warmest part of the country during this heat wave. What's it been like in Phoenix and elsewhere? Well, even though I went to Phoenix, you know, expecting it to be very, very hot, I think I was still kind of astounded by what it actually felt like on the ground. You know, you leave air conditioning and you just feel like you get hit with this wall of hot air. And I was walking around downtown one day in the afternoon just kind of talking to people. And I think it was less than an hour I was outside, which is far too long in these kind of weather. You know, I was very overheated and, you know, sweating through my clothes. And by the time I got back to my hotel, there were people looking at me very concerned in the elevator. And I had to go, you know, lay on the floor of my hotel and chug Gatorade. So, you know, it's dangerous conditions out there. And Phoenix is used to hot weather, as I heard from so many people when I was there, but this heat wave has really kind of disrupted normal life there. Yeah, last year, I spent a lot of time in Arizona. And I remember I was there one day where just one day, mercifully, where it hit uh, 117. And and, uh, you're right, it was a bit like walking around on the floor of an oven. The unofficial state motto is that it's a dry heat. And that does that does help a bit. But it's still really unpleasant. And one thing that struck me, and I don't know what you saw when you were there, but when I was there last year, um, there was quite a lot of street homelessness. And there was also quite a lot of construction work going on because Phoenix is, of course, growing and a lot of people are moving there. And a lot of that was still continuing. A lot of that construction work was still going on. And I think the city was trying to get folks who were living outside to come in if they could. But I don't know how successful that was. But I don't know if you saw that those things did end this this time around, that there was actually a lot more disruption than what I observed last year. 
So when I was in Phoenix, I spent one morning actually at a homeless encampment to see that exact thing. There were a lot of people outside, hundreds even. I went to the Human Services Campus, which is kind of a consortium of groups that works to help homeless people in Phoenix. And because that campus exists, a lot of folks camp right outside of it so they can have access to those services. And most of them kind of kept inside their tents because at least the tents offered some shade. But the pavement was so hot that a lot of people are getting sent to the hospital with burns. The burn ward in certain hospitals are full because people keep you know, scalding themselves on this hot pavement. And if you're outside, your body never gets a chance to cool down when the low in Phoenix some days was 96 or 97 degrees Fahrenheit. So it really is kind of people who are spending a lot of time outside that are the most vulnerable in these types of heat waves. And those are the folks that that the city of Phoenix are really trying to target. So Erin, Phoenix has been suffering terribly, as you described, but it's not the only place, right? Something like a third of the population of America has been under extreme heat advisories over the past 10 days or so. Yeah, that's right, John. So this heat wave has kind of stretched across America's Sun Belt, which is sort of if you think of the southern half of the country from Los Angeles all the way over to Jacksonville and down to Miami. And that whole area is kind of sizzling. And There are places other than Phoenix that are really worrisome. The waters around Florida have reached temperatures previously unseen. So lots of researchers and climatologists are quite worried about the fact that we might see bleaching of coral reefs and that we might see a more severe hurricane season as a result of the very hot waters. Yes, and the point about water temperatures is relevant. I was talking to Ollie outside the studio And he made the point to me that relative to other big countries, America is unusually exposed to coastlines that bring in their own different weather systems. So, you know, the Atlantic and the Pacific and also the Gulf. And so as a result, is more likely to have some of these extreme weather events. And what we've been seeing in Phoenix and elsewhere over the past few weeks is not exactly a preview of what's to come in America, because what's to come in America is that these sorts of events will become ever more commonplace. But as the temperature warms and the bell curve, you know, shifts to the right, we'll have even more extreme events at the tails. Okay, let's leave it there for the moment. We'll discover how air conditioning shifted the locus of political power in America in a moment. But first, it is almost time for the Checks and Balance Summer Book Club. In an episode soon, we'll be discussing what we think makes a great American novel. And in particular, we'll be discussing The Age of Innocence, The Sound and the Fury, and Invisible Man. So do read along if you can and email us with your thoughts on those picks. Some of you have done that already, so thanks for that. And also, why not send us your own nomination for a great American novel? I'm not saying the great American novel, because when I tried to do that on an email chain with Idris and Charlotte and John Fasman, a riot broke out. Can I say, while we're on the subject of air conditioning, I know that Idris picked a Faulkner novel for the book club. And Faulkner famously hated air conditioning, and he lived in Mississippi, and he did not install it in his house. And he, I don't think it was because of the air conditioning, but he just happened to die of a heart attack on a very hot July day without air conditioning. And sometime very soon afterwards, I think his wife installed air conditioning in the house. Fun fact. That is a very fun fact that I did not know. Our email address is podcasts with an S at economist.com. So send your recs and your thoughts there. 
The story of air conditioning began in the hospital ward and the printing press. In the first half of the 19th century, a Floridian doctor, John Gorry, hung a block of ice in a container above his yellow fever-stricken patients. He blew air onto it from above, which cooled the air below, giving some comfort to the invalids. Gorry experimented further and invented a contraption which would manufacture cool air by encouraging the rapid expansion of gas. But his machine was large and impractical, and Gorry lacked entrepreneurial nous. In 1902, a publishing company in New York had a problem. The paper was curling as it was being printed, distorting the type and the illustrations. An engineer called Willis Carrier realised humidity was causing this and, adapting John Gorry's vapour compression method, made a niftier and more effective machine to cool and dehumidify the air. America latched onto it. Proper mill conditioning means first air conditioning for the control of humidity and temperature and for purification of air in the mill. So it was interesting that it was the industrial application of air conditioning, not the public health aspect of air conditioning, that first kind of got it popularity. Jeff Goodall is the author of The Heat Will Kill You First, which looks at the effect of rising temperatures on the Earth. It includes a chapter on how air conditioning changed America. And then other entrepreneurs began to explore other uses for it. And it really took off when manufacturing efficiencies and improved design made it cheap enough for it to become a consumer item in the 1950s. This lucky baby will sleep quietly through the night. Yes, no matter how high the temperature goes outdoors, this baby's RCA air conditioner will keep his room filled with cool, dry, fresh air and keep that room so comfortable and quiet He'll never need a middle-of-the-night lullaby. And it had dramatic implications for the shape of our world, especially here in the U.S., where it, it began. It's an American invention as much as Big Macs and personal computers. And, you know, it allowed people to live in places like where I live right now, in Austin, Texas, or in Florida, with relative comfort. There's an air conditioner, a brute of an air conditioner. Unbelievably powerful, unbelievably quiet. The Sun Belt jumped from having 28% of the population in 1950 to 40% in the year 2000. This redistributed political power in America. So you had this massive boom in population in to Florida, some parts of Texas, uh, all along the Gulf Coast, beginning of development in places like Arizona, Phoenix, Tucson. And a lot of these people were, were older. They were conservative in their politics. And it really shifted the political dynamic. And Richard Nixon was the first president of the United States to really understand this. And he and his advisors developed what was called the Southern Strategy, which really targeted these older conservative voters and built their, you know, his, his coalition around these new Southern conservatives. Bill Clinton succeeded. He's a Southern boy. He was from Arkansas. He succeeded because he famously kind of triangulated with these Southern conservatives. Between the 1940 and 1984 elections, Arizona, California, Florida, New Mexico and Texas gained 51 electoral college votes. Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio and Illinois lost 34. 
cannot live another day without air conditioning. Says tomorrow's gonna be hotter. Hotter? Like yesterday. Yesterday? Yesterday you said you'd call Sears. I'll call today. You call now. I'll call now. But have Americans become too dependent on their magical boxes of cold air? Or the fragility of the bubble of air conditioning is not well understood. If the power goes out, you lose air conditioning. A power failure during a heat wave could be catastrophic. And uh, I talked to an infrastructure expert in Arizona who talked about what he called a heat Katrina, which was a reference to the uh, Hurricane Katrina that wiped out New Orleans, which would be, you know, a, a one or two day blackout in a major city during a heat wave would be devastating. As he put it, thousands of people would die because it doesn't take long in a building that is designed for air conditioning. If that air conditioning fails, often these buildings are built so the windows don't open. You can't get access to fresh air. They kind of become convection ovens really quickly. So by becoming dependent upon air conditioning, we're dependent upon this sort of umbilical cord of power never failing. And we know very well that it does and that it will. So Idris, there have been various great migrations in American history from east to west, from north to south, from south to north. And the air conditioning Great Migration is an important one of those. I mean, it really changed states like Florida in particular, turned that from pretty much a backwater to one of the most popular states in the country and a huge political heavyweight. So there is a, it is possible to write a kind of history of American politics in the 20th century around the introduction of air conditioning. Yeah, that's right. It makes places like Arizona habitable, Las Vegas habitable uh, for some months of the year. It also just, I think, reduces quite a lot of human misery. So that's a good thing indeed. It's mattered to a lot of the rest of the world too. There was an interview once with uh, Lee Kuan Yew, who founded Singapore, and he was asked uh, what enabled Singapore's dramatic success, and he answered, air conditioning. Air conditioning was a most important invention for us, perhaps one of the signal inventions of history. It changed the nature of civilization by making development possible in the tropics. And, you know, I think that there's an efficiency argument just in terms of how much it enables for people. You know, if you go back a few hundred years, Montesquieu, the French political philosopher, had this theory that um, good thinking could only happen in cold climates because it was too hot to use your brain. Otherwise, that's a bit simplified. But it, nonetheless, it was it was so you know important that people wondered whether or not they'd be able to even think in the heat. So I think that not only has it allowed uh, Americans to think all over the place, but also to do a lot more. Erin, is this migration broadly a good thing? I mean, on the one hand, as Idris points out, air conditioning enables life in all sorts of places where it wouldn't be uh, possible before helps Americans to keep their brains cool and think and do all sorts of other things move to beautiful parts of the country on the other hand as Jeff Goodall was saying there there is something quite frightening about the prospect of a power failure in the southwest even worse than the idea of the heating going out in the north where in the middle of winter people can pile more clothes on yeah I think about this question a lot normally in terms of water scarcity, um, which you guys know I am a bit obsessed with. When I was speaking with David Hondula, who's Phoenix's chief heat officer, who we'll hear from a bit later, he kind of pushed back on the idea that the Southwest is virtually unlivable without air conditioning and, you know, what are Americans doing moving to this very risky place? He kind of said to me, you know, for as long as there have been humans we have lived in really hot places, um, and what's to think that now would be any different? And in fact, we've come up with all these 
adaptation strategies like air conditioning that make living in these places much easier. And he also kind of pushed back on the idea that Phoenix and hot places were the only places exposed to risk. We see that with coastal flooding, with cities that experience extreme cold, with cities at risk of wildfires. So I think he is right in that, you know, there's more than enough risk to go around. It's just making sure that with all of this growth in the Sun Belt, that that growth is being done kind of in a responsible, sustainable way. And in some places, that might not be possible. Erin, can I just pick you up on that? Which places would you categorize as you know, a bad idea for humans to live in in the Southwest? I think that officials are reckoning with that right now. You know, in Arizona, the governor, Katie Hobbs, has just kind of decreed that there are parts of the Phoenix metro area that can't sustain growth because there's not a big enough supply of groundwater or because groundwater is that settlement's only option. There are parts probably of the Gulf where flooding makes building homes there very risky. And we're seeing places in California, in Florida, in Texas, around the Gulf. And as a hedge against that risk, we're seeing insurance premiums increase in these risky places like the Florida coast, like the Gulf Coast, like California, Allstate and State Farm just said they wouldn't insure new homes there. And so I think we're kind of starting to see on the map these places where people are deciding, okay, maybe, you know, the risk is too great. But then the kind of crutches, we'll see if homes get built there anyway in the next few decades, I guess. So the limiting factor there is really exposure to storms and availability of water, more so than extreme temperature. I think this is one of the places where the kind of nature of heat comes into the equation. In Jeff's really good book that he's written, he talks about how heat is this invisible killer. And because there's no really visual manifestation of it, like there is for hurricanes or wildfires with their orange skies or tornadoes that cause so much damage, it's harder for people to see the danger. And Dave Hondula from Phoenix told me, you know, after this heat wave is over, Phoenix is going to look the same. It's not going to look like it went through something really traumatic. And that's just the nature of heat. And so one of the big challenges when we're talking about the dangers of heat is to communicate the ways in which it does affect society, even though it might not look like it. Yes, and all around this migration to the Sun Belt, there's this question about sustainability. But I'm not convinced, having talked to you guys a bit in preparation for this podcast, that that's the right framing here. Because certainly in terms of energy use, living in Phoenix doesn't seem to be worse, um, or in fact, it seems to be quite a lot better than living in, say, Minneapolis and having to heat your house through the winter. Yeah, I, th- I think it's easy sometimes to moralize about uh, people choosing to live in the desert and how dare they. But, you know, Arizona doesn't score particularly highly. I think it's 40th out of 50 or thereabouts in terms of energy consumption at the household level. And New England, where, you know, you have cooler summers, but very, very cold winters that necessitate heating, can be inefficient, particularly if, like a lot of New England, you rely on things even like heating oil, as opposed to the installation of heat pumps, which are these kind of magical devices that allow you to efficiently heat and cool a home, depending on the season. You know, implementation of that stuff matters. So it's not quite as simple as sometimes people make it out to be, which is, uh, why do people live in Phoenix? What if they all just moved um, somewhere else? Like Aaron was pointing out, almost every place in America is exposed to climate risk at this point. And so it's not just a, uh, 
bad decision on the part of a few people. It's a, it's a serious problem everywhere you look. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear Erin's reporting from Phoenix on how America's hottest big city is trying to adjust to extreme heat. So, Erin, while you were in Phoenix, you were looking not just at the effects of the heat wave, but also talking to some people about some solutions about how that city might adapt in the future. Yes, that's right. So I spent a few days in Phoenix at the height of the heat wave to find out how the city is trying to adapt to these extreme temperatures. And I did a lot of my reporting really early in the day to beat the worst of the heat. And one morning I drove up these kind of winding roads to South Mountain Park to try to get a better vantage point of the valley. It's about 9.30 now, it's still about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That's around 37 degrees Celsius. There's nobody else up here, I'm the only one. I'm guessing if there were any hikers, they probably were here around 6 a.m. when It was a little cooler, probably a balmy 90 degrees. From my mountaintop perch, I could see how vast Phoenix is. The city's suburbs and exurbs sprawl across the desert. And there were houses almost as far as I could see. Five million people live in a metro area that 150 years ago was just a small settlement surrounded by mountains and cacti. And Phoenix is in the middle of the Sonoran Desert. And from here, it really shows like the cacti look so natural. Um, You can kind of imagine if the city wasn't here, it would just be um, all desert landscaping. And I'm trying to avoid lizards. Um, There's a shady house um, overlooking the city, but I'm nervous to go into it because I'm guessing that that's where, you know, rattlesnakes might enjoy some shade also. Um, So I think we'll avoid for now and and head back to the city soon. As of Wednesday, July 26th, Phoenix has seen 27 straight days over 110 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 43 degrees Celsius. That absolutely smashes the previous record of 18 days, that back in 1974. It's the longevity of this heat wave that is really astounding. Officials are worried what public health data will reveal when the heat finally breaks. The number of deaths associated with heat in Maricopa County, which includes Phoenix, has risen each year since 2014. Phoenix is the hottest and one of the fastest growing cities in America. As more and more people move there, It urgently needs to find ways to cool down. You can hear the traffic in the background. That's kind of along this main drag on 16th Street, and that's just looks like normal black asphalt. I drove to a neighborhood just north of downtown to see one idea in action. Then you go a block east to where I'm standing, and instead the road kind of has this bluish, silvery shimmer. You can tell that it's been coated with something. And that's so hopefully these streets, rather than absorbing all of that sunlight, 
will reflect it back. Uh, and that's hopefully so, you know, it'll keep these streets cooler, especially in the evenings. There's some debate over how effective these types of reflective pavements are, because while it definitely has been proven to cool surface temperatures, it's kind of, the jury is still out over how much it cools air temperatures, and it actually might reflect heat up and onto people during the day. Phoenix is also planning to plant a lot more trees across the city. And new developments downtown are required to provide shade. Coordinating all of this, and more, is David Hondula. He's one of a few chief heat officers that have been hired by America's hottest places just in the past few years. We see our, our work as having two related missions. One, we call heat response. A mission to protect public health during our hot summers. And then the second half of our mission, we call heat mitigation long-term strategies that will cool the city and make it more comfortable. And this is where efforts like tree planting and reflective surfaces would come in. Part of Dave's job is just getting people to take the heat seriously. There's this governance gap for heat. And I would suggest that heat is important for our, our government agencies to be working on at all levels. Yet when we look at planning documents, Uh, including the federally required hazard mitigation plans that all communities across the country write, the heat sections of those documents are generally woefully underdeveloped compared to what we see for other hazards. I'm really curious when you think about, you know, Phoenix in, in 10 years time, for example, what do you hope that the city looks like in terms of implementing some of those adaptation strategies, whether that's shade or reflective surfaces or or something else? Uh, 10 years from now, even 10 months from now, more people, more comfortable, more often. Uh, I think those six words really give the space to think about the places people move through their daily life, indoors and out, thinking about what temperatures are inside people's homes, what it takes to, to pay the electricity bill. And it thinks about the outdoor spaces that we're moving through as well, the sidewalks, the playgrounds, the, the workplaces that are outside. I think it humanizes the, the heat challenge, those six words, humanize the heat challenge in a different way than is the case when we're talking about global scale climate change and the temperature of cities. Jeff Goodell, the author of The Heat Will Kill You First, suggests that American cities could look for advice abroad. Cities like Athens are, you know, rebuilding this Roman aqueduct, trying to bring water into the city to allow them to build more green spaces and shade structures. Paris is doing a great job of greening its central city, removing vehicles from downtown. And the Seine is now open for swimming for the first time in 100 years. This kind of bringing nature back into cities is a big part of this movement to help cool things off. Here in Texas, where I live, um, just a few blocks away from me is a big park called Barton Springs that has a spring-fed pool in it that is a public pool. And on these hot days like today, you know, you go there in the evening especially, and it's just jammed with people. And you can almost hear them sizzle as they jump in the water, you know, to cool off. And it's and these kinds of public cooling spaces, public spaces where Everyone can go and find shade, find coolness, find refuge. 
is increasingly important. Dave Hondula says he's optimistic about the future, even in the face of Phoenix's record-breaking heat. There's no reason a hotter future for Phoenix can't be one that's more comfortable for everyone, but we'll need to, to be smart about our investments to get there. Erin, that was fascinating. Before we get on to some of the solutions, some of the things that cities can do to mitigate hotter and hotter temperatures, could you explain the urban heat island effect a little bit? Because this is something I don't think I really fully understood until I talked to you when we were having a back and forth about this story. The extent to which the way cities have been designed and engineered over the past decades actually raises the temperature in the city itself compared with the surrounding countryside. Yes, um, absolutely. That's really crucial, actually, to kind of everything that we've been talking about today in terms of these vulnerable cities. And they are vulnerable because of what's called the urban heat island effect. And that's because of, you know, the amounts of roads and concrete and the building materials that we have used to build our cities. They kind of absorb and trap heat throughout the day. And so studies have shown that city cores, for example, are anywhere from 10 to 15 degrees Celsius hotter than the surrounding rural areas. And so a lot of the adaptation strategies that I was talking about with Dave in Phoenix are to mitigate this urban heat island effect. And so that's when we're talking about like different building materials that we can use, ways to cool down that urban core where they see the majority of their, you know, emergency calls coming from during a heat wave like the one that Phoenix is experiencing now. It's 10 to 15 degrees C? Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Gosh. Yeah, it's horrendous. Well, I'd be curious to hear, is America as a whole far behind um, countries in terms of thinking about this? You know, we mentioned some European cities that are dealing with it, but, you know, there's cities in the developing world um, in India that have huge numbers of people for example, and uh, are they managing, probably don't have access to the uh, ubiquity of AC uh, as we do here, but what, what are they doing and are, they, are, they, are there some lessons there for uh, America? Yeah, I think it's important to say adaptation is always going to be easiest for wealthy countries that can afford to implement these solutions um, and within America for wealthier you know, cities or states. But abroad, we are seeing really interesting things, especially coming out of India, where probably the most people are at risk of extreme heat. So years ago, Ahmedabad in India, in in the state of Gujarat, created this plan. And one tenet of it was for people to kind of check on their neighbors and elderly folks in the community and to send out alerts and warnings when they were about to experience a heat wave. And studies have shown that that has saved thousands of lives and other cities have gone on to copy it. So it's not necessarily the developing world that's setting the standard. That said, Jeff mentioned Paris, which is doing really innovative things with nature. Seville, Spain was, I think, the first city to name a heat wave and implement kind of a warning level system like we're used to seeing for hurricanes. Athens is also developing a heat warning system. So there's kind of innovative things happening all over the world. I wouldn't say America is very far behind, especially as we're seeing these chief heat officers 
pop up to bridge that kind of governance gap that Dave was talking about. But I think we're also really early in looking at how cities are implementing these adaptation strategies, which is sort of devastating when you think about it that it's taken this long. But I do think it's quite early in the game. And we're seeing new things being implemented all the time, like the reflective pavements that I went to go see, like planting more trees for shade, like putting gardens on roofs to cool things down. There's all kinds of things that that cities are trying. Erin, I'm curious, Arizona is a swing state, a purple state these days. Is there a degree of consensus in state politics about what needs to be done here? Or is it the case that because Democrats live in cities and Republicans live in suburbs and rural areas, to oversimplify, but that's sort of broadly true, that interest in this subject breaks down along party lines? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I asked Dave Hondula about this to see if he had run up against any opposition in Arizona, because there are Republican-run smaller cities in Arizona as well. And he said that climate change doesn't necessarily have to come into those discussions because it's hot right now and people want salvation. So he thought that there was kind of a non-political way to go about the discussion where I think that politics might play a role and we may already be seeing this. It's with state standards. So for example, there's no federal heat standard that protects workers or kind of mandates how many breaks that they should get when it's above, you know, 90 degrees Fahrenheit or, or whatever. But there are a couple of states that have implemented those standards and they're all democratic. So I think that it's on policy fronts like that where we might start to see a partisan divergence. So maybe actually politically adapting to heat is different to adapting to or trying to slow down climate change, which is something where Republicans seem less enthusiastic about the government taking some action. When the city's hot, people can see that something needs to be done. Maybe the politics are a bit more like the politics of renewable energy, where you see in states like Texas, you know, despite being a thoroughly Republican state, it's pretty advanced the deployment of, of wind power and solar energy. So there may be some way in which this issue actually scrambles politics a bit. I'm sure we'll come back to this in the future, Erin. And in, in the meantime, thank you so much for all your reporting. That was really interesting. As you know, We have a quiz for you before you go. And this week, it's all about air conditioning. Question one. What percentage of American households have air conditioning? And if you get within five, um, I'm going to give you a point. Oh, I think it's something like 76%. Um, 90%. Idris is two points away. It's 88%. So Idris, you win that one. Yeah, Aaron, you would have been right in 2001 when it was 77%, but it's now 88%. Question two. What percentage of British households have air conditioning? Again, if you get within five, I'll give you a point. Uh, I'd say 20. Erin? I think it's higher than that. Maybe just because in the last few years people have added it. I'm going to say like 37 I'm afraid no points to either of you. It's just 3% of households. It's the same. Yeah, it's low. It's the same in Germany. And France is relatively advanced with 5% having air conditioning. 
Those numbers are from 2018, so it might be a bit higher now, but I don't think it's anywhere near um, your guesses, unfortunately. That's okay. That is stunning. I was in France in, was it 2018 or 2019, when there was that horrendous heat wave and my sister almost fainted at Versailles. She She was fine. Oh, good. I'm relieved she was fine. It puts me in mind of someone that's in Marie Antoinette's caught in a corset that was too tight just keeling over in the sunshine i feel like it must have happened a fair bit so idris congratulations on another quiz victory by one point thanks for being here thanks aaron too thanks for having me yeah thank you so much this episode was produced by harriet noble our sound engineer is nicola rofast thank you to john shields and oliver morton for their help with this episode if you enjoyed this one i can recommend babbage our science and technology podcast, which this week looks at how meteorologists are meeting the challenge of predicting extreme weather events like the one we've been discussing today. Podcasts like Babbage and this one are made possible by our subscribers. Thank you so much if you subscribe already. And if you don't, you can go to economist.com slash uspod to sign up. It'll give you access to all of our journalism and there's a 30-day free trial on at the moment. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can explore our whole archive of checks and balance if you'd like to do so at economist.com slash checks pod. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. Stay cool. We'll have more checks and balance next week.